You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Our scripture today comes from Colossians chapter 1, verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 3. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I'm completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to you, to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. For I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you, for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me in prison. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches and complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all these treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is God's word. Good morning. Great to see everybody this morning. Um, I'm excited for the opportunity to open God's Word together and uh, see this great and hidden mystery that's been revealed of Christ in us, the hope of glory. Uh, I heard a story recently that has kind of captivated my my mind uh, and I, I couldn't stop thinking about and I think that it will hopefully serve as a good illustration uh, as we walk through this passage of, of what I think Paul is attempting to do here as he describes the goal and the purpose and the work that he's doing in his ministry to the church at, in Colossians. The story is of a young man who grew up um, in a Catholic home and uh, his you know, parents attended uh, mass regularly. They were fairly involved in, in that church setting. But as he began to be a teenager and especially into high school, uh, he got really into science and into the study of the material and the natural world. And he felt a disconnect between what he was learning in that and his Catholic faith. And he um, used that, he says, as as an excuse to stop uh, attending church and to stop thinking about the things of God. And he became wholly consumed as understanding the world purely through a scientific and rationalist perspective. As he was doing that, though, he began to have reoccurring nightmares. And these nightmares were what he called zombie nightmares, where he would be in this zombie world, he would be being chased by zombies and the inevitably would be you know, overtaken and eaten by the zombies. And he said it wasn't so much a nightmare in terms of like scary and he was afraid. It was just this, this recurring dream. And even within his dreams, he would be eaten and then he would just kind of like start again. <laughs> and the zombies would come again and he'd be eaten and he'd start again. And just he would have it every single night. And so he eventually, through um, 
study. Uh, he kind of shifted from science into philosophy. Brilliant guy, got his PhD. Um, eventually, he, he came to see the faults in his, his worldview. And he came back to believe that, that, no, there truly was a God and that God has been revealed in Christ. And he, he you know, returned to the faith of his childhood and he began seeing a spiritual mentor and the zombie dreams didn't stop. So he, he came to his mentor and he said, what do I do? And he said, if, if you were me, what would you do in this situation? And I was just struck by that question. And so I want to pose it to you as well. What would you do? If a friend or a coworker or a child came to you and said, I'm having these zombie nightmares and I don't know how to get them to stop, what, what counsel would you give them? What would you say? And the reason this story struck me is because I had no idea. <laughs> right? I, I, would, I didn't, would not know what to say in that, that situation. And I began to think that actually zombies are a pretty good metaphor for a lot of the problems that we may experience in our Christian life. You see, zombies are a twisted or deranged type of life, right? They are resurrected, but not to any sort of real life. They do have bodies, but they're stinking and rotten. They kind of make a mockery of our belief in the resurrection that we will experience in Christ. And sometimes I think this is how we are deceived into perceiving our own Christian life. That we are saved or we are resurrected, but we're basically resigned to live like zombies until Christ returns. Perhaps we still have struggles with sin that tempt us to believe that we're enslaved to that. Perhaps we go through seasons of dryness or apathy where we are just kind of bumbling around like zombies. Perhaps we are tempted by the other ideologies that we see in the world that we should prioritize ourselves above all others, that there is security to be found in more money, that true advantage in the world is found in gaining more power, or that true pleasure is found in fulfilling our sexual appetites. We're tempted to think that this is the life that we're kind of resigned to live until Christ returns. And I appreciate how Pastor Chad, throughout this series in Colossians, has brought this again and again to emphasize that the Christian life is not just about getting to go to heaven when you die. I am 100% agree with him. We need to recapture the power and the life that we have because of Christ right now. And this is what Paul is fighting for in Colossians. Remember, he's writing to them to try and correct a false teaching that seems to have crept its way inside the church. This is the ministry that Paul is going for. Notice the language that we find in this passage. He says, I am completing in my flesh what is lacking. He is trying to make the word of God fully known. He wants to present everyone mature in Christ so that they may all have the riches of complete understanding. You see, Paul has commended the Colossians throughout this letter for their faith and for their love for one another. But when he gets to this point, he is still concerned that something is lacking, that something is not yet complete in them. And this, I think, is one of the fundamental struggles of all of Christian ministry. 
How do we get people to really take this seriously? How do we get them to grow in Christ, to experience fullness in Christ? We could call it discipleship. We could call it sanctification. We could call it practicing spiritual disciplines. It gets called any number of things throughout Christian ministry. We can call it whatever we want, but it's always a struggle. I, I personally have experienced this throughout ministry opportunities in my life. When, when I was first married right out of college, I served as a youth pastor at a church uh, back in Ohio. And so much of our efforts and our times was put into trying to prepare these students to hold on to their faith as they went into college. Uh, I got to serve as a missionary during college uh, over in India. And we were really focused on trying to plant churches in the rural areas of India. And one of the things that we struggled with is that when we would do that in a grassroots way, within just a few generations, so many of those churches inevitably would go into heresy. They were were easily led astray into false teachings. Uh, All through my time at seminary, back at our, our sending church, Imago Dei, I got to serve as a small group leader. And I experienced it there getting people to truly engage with the word of God. We would have our small group time and when we're there at first and we're eating, everybody is loud and talking and laughing and full of life. And then we sit down to open the the word of God and discuss it and nothing. Falling asleep, bored, nothing to say, right? How, how How do we get people to really grasp this? And I think if we're all honest, we perhaps are struggling with that now or have struggled with it. And one of the reasons that this passage has, has spoke to me this week is that because it, it was my struggle too. This is, this is my story. I have gone through a season where I literally felt like a zombie, where I was just stumbling through life with no real direction, tempted to kind of go wherever the crowd was going. I was struggling to hold on to the faith I was struggling to resist the temptations of the world, to find true joy and riches in Christ. And the key that Paul gives in this passage for this concern revolves around this phrase, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So I want to take a few minutes to really consider this passage, and we're going to pick it apart word by word. And I'm going to go kind of backwards. So first I'm going to start with glory. Glory, this is a very important and complex topic and theme throughout all of Scripture. But as simple as we can uh, describe it here today, glory we can think of as equated to the very presence of God. Think of uh, back in, in when we went through our series in Exodus, when the glory descended onto the tabernacle. It was the very presence of God coming down to dwell in the tabernacle with his people. So I think in reference to us, when we're thinking of Christ in us, the hope of glory, this means that it's the ability for us to participate in the presence of God, to share space with him, to be united to him and to his life. That is glory. And hope. Hope, oftentimes in our world, is thought of as just wishful thinking. But in the Bible, hope 
expresses rather an, an assured expectation. It's not just something that we wishfully hope will happen. Rather, it's something that we expect to happen. And we have assurance of that happening because of the realities of, of right now. And then Christ. This is where I think the meat of this uh, phrase we really need to spend our time in. He says, Christ is the mystery. Notice it's not a principle or a proposition, but it's a person who is at the center of this mystery. One commentator noted that here he says, Paul sees the ground and the goal of all history to be Christ. Therefore, the gospel message is first about Christ, and only then is it about our salvation. And this order turns Christ from simply being a means of redemption into the subject of the gospel itself. This is such an important point. I wish I had more time to develop it, but we cannot simply think of the gospel as a mere abstraction, as a nice little synthesis of ideas. Ideas are finite. They can only take you so far. But a person is infinite, right? I, I like to joke with my wife all the time. I say, I know you, right? I, I know you. I know you better than you know yourself. You can't surprise me anymore. But in reality, that's not true. You can, I, I see David here chuckling, you know, you, you could be married to someone for 60 years and they could still surprise you. Because they're a person, they're dynamic, they're alive. There's infinite ways in which we experience a person. And that's what Paul is saying. It is Christ, this person, that is the mystery. And throughout church history, there have been so many great reflections on this idea. But one in particular that has really impacted me is from, back from the church fathers, who are kind of the earliest writers that we have in the Christian tradition. And one of the best on this subject was a man named Maximus the Confessor. And uh, he's called the Confessor because he uh, suffered persecution. He had his tongue cut out and his hand cut off because he was unwilling to uh, go against his convictions about who Christ was as fully man and fully God. And he would look directly at the person of Christ and he would see in it, in him, the purpose of all creation. I, I have a quote here. From him, He says, This is the great and hidden mystery. This is the blessed end for which all things were brought into existence. This is the divine purpose conceived before the beginning of being. And in defining it, we should say that this mystery is the preconceived goal for the sake of which everything exists. By which itself exists on account of nothing. And it was with a view to this end that God created the essence of beings. So you see here, he's looking at Christ, the person of Christ, and he is saying that this is the, the preconceived goal, the purpose for the sake that everything exists. And we've seen Paul talk about this in the previous passages in, in Colossians, right? Christ is the one who is both the firstborn of all creation and the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. You see, God is not... There's not this one person who is Jesus God and this one person who is Jesus man and they come together to make Jesus. That's not what Paul is saying. He is saying there is one person 
one substance, who is God and man, Jesus Christ. This is the insight that in Christ, in this person where we see God and man fully united, that is the end for which God created us. Christ shared fully in our humanity so that we would share fully in his divinity, that we should become by grace what he is by nature. And we see that in the next phrase in this passage, Christ in you. The end for which we were created, union with God, sharing in the life of God, or simply put, glory, we have assurance that at the end, when this work is completed, we will share in that glory because right now Christ is in us. As John said, the word came and dwelled among us and we beheld his glory. We've seen his glory. We've seen that he has shared fully in the glory of God, that the fullness of God dwelled within him. And now that same person dwells within us, giving us assurance of of Christ completing that work in us in the end and being able to share in that same glory with him. And in case you think I'm a little bit crazy here, Paul is going to say the same exact thing in next week's passage. Look down just a little bit in your, in your Bible there to Colossians 2, 9 and 10. It says, The entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. And what does verse 10 say? And you have been filled with him. And this was the answer to the zombie dreams. This was the insight that they had. They took this passage seriously, that Christ is in you, and that in him are all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The counsel that was given to this young man was to go into the zombie world and do in that world for the zombies what Christ has done for him. He was to go and to die on behalf of the zombies. To let himself be eaten for their sake, for their benefit. And then resurrect with new life so that they who partook in his death can now also partake in the new life that he has. Not as zombies anymore, but as fellow humans. And you know what? It worked. He has not had a single zombie dream since then. And that, it just all fit together for me when I, when I heard that. I, I would have never thought of that. But he took this truth, that Christ is in us. So with Christ in us, with glory secured, we are to then right now embody him in all things. We often read this verse, Christ in you, the hope of glory, and think of it as a, a, a promise, which it certainly is. But also don't forget, it is Christ in you right now. And this is what Paul's ministry to the Colossians is trying to accomplish. The goal for which he is laboring is that they would be embodied with the fullness of Christ. Not that they would live like zombies, driven around by impulses and easily deceived, but rather to live as Christ. And this is the genius 
of Paul and of the Holy Spirit in his inspiring of Paul to write this letter. In describing his ministry to the Colossians, Paul himself exemplifies the very same truth in himself. He takes on Christ in the fullness of his own body in his ministry to the Colossians. And he's saying, as I'm trying to get you to experience fullness in Christ, Christ is filling me in that very same ministry to the full. He's like an apprentice who has taken on the work of his master. So we're going to look briefly at three, the three areas that Paul calls to attention in his ministry to the Colossians that exemplify Christ working in Paul and can serve as a good example for us of what this life looks like to be filled with the fullness of Christ. First is suffering. So in the very first verse there, verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. Now, this is a, a difficult verse, uh, no doubt, and there are lots of different opinions out there. But I first want to at least establish what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that Christ's afflictions were not 100% effective to reconcile for sinners and to forgive us. Remember the verse that we just recited this morning and, Paul and Chad preached on last week. He has reconciled you through his physical body through death. So we are not saying that there is something lacking in that affliction of Christ to reconcile us, to forgive us. But that does beg the question of, what is Paul saying then? Using words that, that seem like we shouldn't be saying that, that there's something lacking. Uh, one common explanation that's given for this is uh, essentially that what is lacking in Christ's affliction is not, again, any, anything on the part of work of Christ, but simply what is lacking is our belief in that work. And so what Paul is explaining then is that he needs to share this gospel and have people believe in that work of Christ. So what's lacking is, is kind of the application to the, to the people's lives. And so it's more of a, this is an evangelistic type of uh, thing that Paul is saying. As he's suffering in his pursuit of advancing the gospel, he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. He's filling up the church. And... There's, in one sense, nothing wrong with that, and I certainly don't want to suggest that we should not be evangelizing and we should not be willing to suffer even in that effort. But I just don't see it fitting within this passage. And a few reasons for that is the verse right before this, Paul has literally just said, the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation. Which I know Paul, uh, Paul, sorry, Chad, you're not Paul, but uh, Chad explained last week it is not necessary to think that every single person in all creation has heard this gospel but i do think that paul is at least expressing he's not concerned about the advancement of the gospel he is confident in its spread throughout all all the nations so i don't think that his immediate concern is i need to we need to be pushing this gospel also we need to remember that this letter is written to believers paul has confirmed that again and again throughout this letter so, and he is saying that he is suffering for their sake, for believers' sake. 
So it seems odd that he would say, I'm suffering for your sake in this advancement of the gospel when, when they have already believed the gospel. So I think we need to put the suffering into a, a little bit of a better context that we've been talking about. This passage is about Paul explaining to the Colossians what he is striving to accomplish in their lives, the fullness and the maturity in Christ. So I think what is lacking becomes more clear that they are not yet full of Christ. To be sure, Christ is in them, but they have not come to maturity in that. Paul, elsewhere in his letters, uses language where he describes his ministry as like a mother raising children. So we can almost think of it as they are st- they are still have they have Christ in them, but it's almost like he's a baby. <laughs> and Paul's ministry them is is like a mother over them, suffering whatever it takes to see them see Christ grow into full maturity. I think a passage that parallels this well is found in Second Corinthians chapter four, where Paul says, speaking of him and his uh, workers in the gospel, he says, "We always carry the death of Jesus in our body." so that the life of Jesus may also be on display. We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may also be on display in our mortal flesh. So then, death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul is taking on the afflictions of Christ to produce life in us, to produce life in those that he is ministering to. There's a, a, a writer, <clears throat> I actually just learned this the other day, um, her name is Julian of Norwich. She was a, a nun in the medieval times, and her, she, had, uh, she suffered a great illness, and during that illness she had these visions of Christ, and she, would, she wrote them down in a diary and later produced it into a book. And it's actually the very first book in English that we have preserved that was written by a woman. Uh, which I thought was very fascinating. But anyways, in these visions, she has these beautiful reflections on who Christ is. And um, over the holidays, I got a book by her where you kind of read a little excerpt each day of the month. And as I was reading through it, one of the reflections that she had was that in one of her visions, she said, Jesus came to her and said, if I could have suffered for you more, I would have. And I thought that was so beautiful to fit in with kind of how Paul is, is explaining this, of, of taking on the afflictions of Christ for their sake. In a sense, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions is that he can't not suffer in his physical body for us anymore. But he wants to. He desires to. So he meets that desire by suffering in the body of the church, in those who are ministering for the gospel. He takes up, as it were, Paul's own afflictions and says, no, this is my afflictions as part of my body. And I I hope this serves as a good encouragement to those of you who are in ministry, especially to you, Chad. I know without a doubt that you suffer in your physical body for us. And we thank you for that. And I hope that you see that you can rejoice in that with Paul. Because Christ is taking that up and saying, I am suffering that with you 
for, the, for your sake, for the body. What a beautiful thought that Christ takes up our sufferings into his own body. Next, we see that Paul is a servant. In uh, verse 25, it says, I have become its servant, that is, the church, according to the commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So Paul has now said he is a servant of the church. In last week's passage, he said he was a servant of the gospel. In this passage, if you read it, look at the amount of times that Paul says, for you. He's suffering for you. He was commissioned by God for you. He is laboring for you. He is struggling for you. Everything that Paul does is on behalf of the Colossians. And it's precisely in his striving, in his serving, for them to be filled with Christ, that he himself is filled with Christ. In verse 29, he says, I am striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. It's in the emptying of himself on behalf of the the other that Christ comes and fills him with his own power and with his own strength. And like a true servant, Paul takes on the very desires of his master. In verse 27, it says that God wanted to make known this glorious mystery. And then down in chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they might have all the riches of complete understanding. The very desire of God is now the desire of Paul. And I love how he uses this idea of encouraging their hearts. I think encouragement is probably one of the most underrated ministries that we have in our world today. And I'm so thankful for people in our church, like our brother Patrick and Greg and Missy Fox, who I feel are a constant source of encouragement for us. It's a ministry deeply needed. So don't stop. So we see here in the first two sentences about Paul's ministry to the Colossians, he has identified himself as a suffering servant. You see how clearly Paul is identifying himself with Christ. As Paul testifies elsewhere, he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. If all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, we become like Christ. We take on the role of a suffering servant to give life to those around us. Finally, in Paul's ministry, he is a sage and I don't love the word, but I was going with the S theme, and it's all I could think of. But I love that he, uh, this line that he uses here in uh, verse 28. He says, We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So he has this threefold uh, uh, ministry of the word. First is to proclaim. This, I think, is the fundamental baseline of all Christian, truly Christian ministry. It's the proclamation of Christ. If you are not proclaiming Christ, you have lost the plot. 
And I think we all need to thank God that we are part of a church that faithfully proclaims Christ each week. Because it is not a given to walk into a church and hear Christ proclaimed. So let's praise God that we do. And let's ensure that we continue to do that. Notice again, we are proclaiming a person, not a principle or a formula. But we are proclaiming Christ. And I think, too, that this proclamation of Christ kind of governs what Paul says next in terms of warning and teaching. We are not just warning and teaching about any old thing, but we are warning and teaching in regards to Christ. That is the, the goal in the ministry of Paul. So, warning. I know this might be unpopular today, but I think that we need to stand firm and warn people when they are straying from Christ. Now, I don't want us to think that warning here is meant necessarily to induce in us fear or shame. I, I, uh, I, don't, I did not look at this specifically myself, so I have not confirmed this, but I heard it from a source that I trust. And she said that when you read through the Gospels, that the only people that Jesus warns are those who would be considered on the inside and never on the outside. And just kind of thinking through, I think Paul would probably align with that pretty closely in terms of his warnings as well. The warning is meant to speak to, the, to our hearts, to acknowledge that we are people who are prone to wander. But in that wandering, there is only pain. It's, it's for us to not get comfortable that, ah, you've made it in, in, to the inside now. Now you just don't need to worry about anything. No, we are to still warn ourselves and I think, you know, example of this is, is with my kids all the time. I, I, I warn them not to ride their bikes in the road, right? And I'm not trying to make them feel shame or fear. I'm simply trying to, to let them know that when you do that, there's only pain, right? You're going to get hit by a car because they're not looking for you. It's warning out of love and compassion, to stay within the confines of Christ. And finally, Paul moves to teaching. We need to teach deeply about Christ, just as Paul has already done in this letter. And the reason for this is simple. It's because we are easily deceived and deception is everywhere. This is the very first story in the Bible. Adam and Eve in perfect union with God, are deceived. We must know that we, we are easy, easily prone to deception, and this is Paul's primary concern with the Colossians. As we're going to see next week, he goes on to say, I am telling you these things so that you will not be easily deceived. Paul wants to present every person mature in Christ. And translators waver back and forth. If you have other translations, perhaps yours says perfect in Christ. And I think, as one commentator said, he said in English, mature is maybe too weak. And perfect is maybe too strong. <laughs> we're, we're trying to find the middle road between those. But the idea is more about a complete completeness or a, a finished work. In Ephesians 4, Paul says... 
that we are, he, he is working for the church, that everyone would be growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. And I think of it like sometimes maybe you have done this in your family growing up or are doing it now, where you put your kids up against a board and you mark with a piece of chalk how tall they are. And then next year you do it again and, and they keep growing. And Paul's saying, Christ has already stood there and we put his mark up there. And the goal is that you are growing to that mark, that you would be filled to the stature and maturity and the fullness of Christ. That's the goal of Paul's ministry. That's the goal of the Christian life. Just as a child will eventually grow into an adult, human beings, as human beings, we are to grow into Christ. And a note on all of this, this proclaiming, this warning, this teaching, is that Paul says that we should be doing it in all wisdom. And again, in keeping with the theme of this passage, how do we know that we're doing it in wisdom? Well, it's in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When we are doing it in Christ, as Christ, with Christ, that's when we are doing it in wisdom. So to close, I just want to make a couple of quick notes about this passage. Notice the completeness of Christ in Paul that his ministry exemplifies here. Paul is suffering with his body, his physical body. He is serving with his strength. He is desiring with his will. He is teaching and warning with his mind. He is encouraging with his heart. Body, strength, will, mind, heart. The, all of Paul, the whole Paul is filled with the whole Christ. This passage, it almost starts to blur the lines between Paul and Christ, right? Paul's afflictions are Christ's afflictions. Paul's desires are Christ's desires. Paul's strivings are Christ's strength. Paul's wisdom is Christ's wisdom. This is what God has created you for. As Maximus says, this is the end for which he has purposed the creation of all beings, fullness in Christ, all of Christ in all of you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the ministry of Paul, that his sufferings for the sake of the Colossians, by your providence and your spirit, have, has also become his sufferings for our sake. That we today benefit from this ministry of Paul. And we recognize, God, that in Paul, he was yielding his entire self to you. He was being filled with Christ in his ministry. And that's what has allowed it to trickle down to us today. That's what gives it the power for us to stand up here today and to teach it again afresh 2,000 years later. It's because it is Christ in him. It is the work of Christ, the person of Christ, at work in him that Christ may now be at work in us. We pray, God, that you would fill us with Christ. 
that we would take this seriously, that we would know, that we would ground ourselves in this truth that you are in us, that you want to fill us, that you want us to grow into full maturity in you. And because you are in us, God, we know that we are assured of that glory, of sharing in the life of God together as, as it says, as co-heirs with Christ, as brothers and sisters in the family of God. We look forward to that day. We pray that in the meantime, we would live lives full in Christ. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.